I hope that by now you're in Titus because we are starting this brand new epistle. <clears throat> in, um, in Palestine, there is a, a sea, I'm sure you've heard of it, called the Dead Sea. And there's multiple reasons why this thing is called the Dead Sea. It's not technically in every single sense dead. It has micro, microbial life in there. But, but it's called the Dead Sea because it is, it is far too salty to support organic life such as plants or fish or the like. And there's sort of two things that go into this that, that, bring, that make it such a dead sea. And, and I'm, I'm going to show that there is, uh, from this we have an image of how there are two ways to die as a church. See, the Dead Sea uh, is, is quite large, but it has only one input. It comes in from the Jordan River in Palestine. And the problem is that it has an input and it has no outflow. Plenty can come in if, it could, you know, if, if need be, but, but it has nowhere to run. It, it becomes somewhat of a natural dam. And so without this flowing water, it, it, it festers. There is, no, there, there is not that natural uh, health that comes from running water. But secondly, the, the sun over there, it rains maybe once or twice a year. There is almost always sunny. And, and what happens is that there is continual evaporation. But again, without flowing water uh, and, and without a, 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 a ratio of input-output, what happens is, and you've done this if you ever did high school science or paid attention in high school science, with, with evaporation, what is left behind when salty water is evaporated is salt. And so what builds up in this Dead Sea is higher and higher and higher each year levels of salination, of, of salt. And so it, it's far too salty to support the kind of life that water usually does. As the church, it is very good to have theological, doctrinal input. We, we need to have input into us. That is what brings, fills, provides, sustains life. However, if there is not also output in obedience, where there is not application, works in life, where there is not an input from God and an output into the world, into our lives, through us, we become this festering, unhealthy church. Water is only healthy if it is moving and flowing. But at the same time, if you, if you have, uh, that, that's one problem, two ways for a church to die. Lots of theological input without application. Another way is to be continually putting out in service to God, right? Like this, to be evaporating up into the Lord as a blessing, but without, without the, the correct kind of uh, uh, re replenishing of those resources. So that we become dry, over salty, bitter, and in the same way, unable to sustain life because we're trying to put out only without the right measures of bringing in. Paul wrote to Titus because he'd sent him to the Mediterranean island of Crete to, to put in order in the churches what was going wrong. Uh, he wanted to send him there, and he says that throughout the book of Titus, there is this continual double message. What a church needs, Titus, what this young church needs is healthy, sound doctrine, truth, majestic, trinitarian, eternal, reformed truth. That's what he's going to be telling him. It's over. You can read through the book of Titus in about five to seven minutes, and you will see this theme continually. But what he's also continually saying is you need to tell them to be zealous, to be hungry, to be, to be on fire for good works. Tell them how to obey. Tell them what that looks like as elders, as the old, as the young, as male, as female, as fathers, as slaves, as the employed, as a church. It is all so important. We have both sound doctrine, good works. So are you ready for the book of Titus? <clears throat> I'm going to read 
chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, just, and this will be somewhat of an introductory uh, uh, sermon as we go uh, through these verses today. So please look at your own Bible. I hope you have it open on your This is the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order. And we will pick up from there next week as he talks about uh, elders in the local church. <clears throat> but what we have here, what we have uh, is, is, is that Titus was not a church planter in, in Crete. Uh, Titus was not the, the resident pastor already. But, but what we do when we turn, this is going to be in a section of your Bible that, that we call the, the pastoral epistles. An epistle is a letter, the pastoral letters, where Paul writes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, Timothy and Titus were, were sort of ministry protégés or, or pastoral uh, trainees with Paul. They were missionaries with him on the, on the trail. They were uh, men that he trained up and then left places, sort of as if uh, you're familiar with, I guess, special operation agents. There were the common pastors. There were those around who were doing their work in their local areas. But then when something came up of uh, extraordinary need, Paul would send to them either Titus or Timothy. They, they were very important uh, workers with him. He, he saw them as very uh, uh, equals to himself. He, he would say in the, in the letter of Corinthians and, and Galatians, he references them as his co-workers in, in the gospel. They, he, he esteemed them very highly, which comes with great weight when it's Paul the Apostle saying that. You can put that on a CV and it, and it, it, it carries some weight. <coughs> But Titus himself, he was a Greek guy, not a Jew growing up, but he, uh, he was converted by Paul. We know that because of how Paul speaks of him in verse 4, saying, you're my true child. He says that to those who have come to life through his preaching of the gospel. So he's, he's a convert of Paul. And then uh, early on in, in the book of Acts, in, in Paul's missionary uh, work, what you see is that Titus came with him to Jerusalem. Uh, which is fine, except that Titus is a Greek and he's coming very early days in the church, uh, church life to Jerusalem. Now, do you see the storm that's brewing there? Early on in the church life, one of the big debates was, uh, do Gentiles receive Jesus through the Old Testament sacraments just like we Jews do? Do you kind of need to become a Jew in order to receive the Jewish Messiah? And one of the reasons that the men were... I think so willing in God's providence to debate this was because that included having to be circumcised as an adult in order to receive salvation. So Titus went with Paul to Jerusalem and this debate broke out. Paul tells us about it in Galatians chapter 2. And, and Paul says that Titus, go figure, was unwilling to be circumcised. Not a team player. But, but then Paul came to his aid and argued saying that on principle, he would not do that. He would not put Titus into that. Uh, because it is being said that he needs to in order to be a true Christian. And we know later on, Titus and Timothy, I said they were sort of equals in Paul's mind before. I think Titus is a favorite because we read later in, in uh, uh, 
uh, in, the, in, in, uh, in Paul's life that he, in his writings later on, he says that when he took Timothy, he had him circumcised, but he was, he was going to go and minister to Jews. I think he got the short straw there. Titus gets sent to a Mediterranean island, don't have to be circumcised. Timothy, he gets it hard. Uh, he, he has the, the rough patch here. So anyway, uh, but, but on principle, Paul would circumcise no one simply to prove their salvation in any way. So here's Titus. He's, he's, he's now uh, in Jerusalem with Paul, already engaged in theological debate, putting on the gloves with his spiritual dad. Um, he, uh, Paul loved him. He calls him fruitful. You have to see that, that Paul's, uh, Paul considered Timothy not just, not just affectionately, not just sentimentally. He considered Titus so, uh, so close to him because of how fruitful he was in the missionary journey. In fact, we see, he talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He got to Troas, which is up, uh, up between um, uh, Turkey and Greece. He got to, to Troas and he had this open door for him in the Lord. So he had this opportunity to go and minister mightily, but his heart was not at ease because he did not have Titus back yet. So he put a hold on that until he found Titus in Macedonia. Then he continued his missionary work. Paul sees Titus, and I want you to, he's, he's kind of a, we don't hear about him much in the New Testament. I want you to realize Paul utilized him, loved him. We should think of Titus as a heavy hitter, which is why it's quite strange that after running the, the Corinthian epistles back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians, after doing that, Paul then sends Titus to Crete. It doesn't seem like an assignment worthy of the man that Titus was. Crete was and had been for centuries known for its vulgar, lying, licentious, lazy, gluttonous lifestyle. And the Christians did not seem, as we read Paul's letter here, didn't really seem to realize that becoming a Christian meant separating from that lifestyle it was also very, very young, that church there. There was not even elders yet. So, so probably what had happened is we don't know entirely how the gospel got to Crete. I'll talk about this in a minute. But whatever, however it got there, at this point of writing this letter, that they're probably in small house churches all meeting together, doing the best they know how. There would have been some Jews there probably converted. So, so they, were, they were making their way through. But Paul needed to go and set things straight in this lazy, slow-going retirement village of an island mixed with 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 Vegas and and Florida I guess if that makes any sense to us the, the maybe we'll do this the sunshine coast all those retired not not not, not just old people but, but those people who would go and end slow down and kick back mixed with the gold coast where you go to party and lose all virtue right that that, that is the island of Crete it was known like that for so long so Paul sends Titus Again, a beautiful spot. It really is. It's a beautiful spot there, the island of Kriti now. But, but uh, that, was, that was Titus's work between 57 to 65 AD. That's about the 10-year-ish gap we have that Titus has probably written. And then after this, at, at the end of Paul's life, we see that he is saying that Titus has gone to Dalmatia, otherwise known as the province that we now call Croatia. So if you know any Croatians that you love, thank Titus for them. No one? No, I, I didn't think we had any Croatians in the, in the congregation. So, so Croatia was, was Christianized by the work and, the, and the, the gospel activity of Titus. So thank the Lord for Titus. Well, we're going to see here, as we start looking at this, 
this, uh, this island of Crete and the gospel work that is to be going on. Titus from Paul, sent by Jesus, sent by the Father. Father sends Jesus, sends the Holy Spirit, uh, enables and empowers his apostles. His apostles teach pastors like Titus, and Titus is to go and speak to the churches of Crete. And his job is to encourage gospel doctrine and demand gospel living. We're going to see how the gospel how the gospel, this, this joy-giving, theologically sound, eschatologically informed, scripturally rich, historically informed, Calvinistically reformed, Jesus-focused, cross-centered gospel doctrine looks like when it takes a hold of a people in a sinful world that is yet to be transformed by God. That's what Titus is all about, and it is a glorious book. I encourage you to read it this week. So Crete, this this area that I think, here's my theory. We don't know how the gospel got to Crete. Either Jews who who had traveled to Pentecost came back to their island of Crete and spread the gospel. That's one possibility. Uh, uh, But we have no proof for that other than speculation. We don't hear of the island of Crete in Scripture other than one little tiny snippet in Acts 27. What happens is that Paul is on this, uh, as he's taking prisoner and he's put on a ship to go to Rome and they keep on having ocean dramas uh, uh, and, and they, they land in Crete for a few maybe days or a week and then after that they come out of harbour and then try and make it to Rome again. Paul has that shipwreck and so on and so forth. I think that the way, and, and I've got some commentators that agree with me, but, you know, they're referencing me here, uh, is, is, is that... <laughs> is that Paul is talking in in verse 5. He's speaking about it in such a way as he has done work there, but very limited. Verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There seems to be uh, that Paul is talking of Crete as somewhere where he has himself done a, a, a small work of the gospel. What I think has happened is that Paul, in that little snippet of time where he had only limited our contact with, with jailers and with other people of the jail staff and with locals, maybe bringing them as food in jail. He's there and he is still able to evangelize and, and get at least, all we need is one. We just need one soul to, to hear that life-saving, transforming gospel. They then go into Crete and as Jesus promised, that, that little bit of yeast into a lump of dough is slowly kneaded through so that the, by the time about AD 60 comes around, there's enough Christian, there's enough of God's elect that have become regenerated through that slow gospel work that Paul can send Titus there to, uh, to put it into order. I think that's what's happened. Never underestimate one man on fire for the gospel. The Romans did that. And they lost the island of Crete to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Over 90% of people today on the island identify at least, I know there's some some, uh, some, uh, 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 laxity in that definition, but at least identify as followers of Jesus Christ to this day because of the work that Titus and Paul did. So let's let's look now more and more into these verses. I'm going to try and show that at least in these these initial introduction, and what an introduction it is. Paul doesn't just say, I'm Paul, you're Titus, let's get to work. 
from the very beginning, he is going to be emphasizing gospel doctrine and gospel work, sound doctrine and good works. <clears throat> so look here, we're going to see, in it, first of all, we're going to look at why God sends Paul. Then we're going to look at why we can have hope. And then we're going to look at how God brings that all about. It'll make more sense as we go. So why did God send Paul? No, not just to Crete. I mean, in general, why did God send Paul? Look at your verse one. Paul calls himself a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's his sending authority and call on his life. Now, why did God send him as a servant and an apostle? For this reason, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Not for their entertainment, not for their prosperity, not so that he can find these enjoy, these people enjoying their life on Crete, identify the elect and, and add to their life a little bit, sprinkle a little bit of, of Jesus sprinkles on their already very full dessert plate of life. Not to come and give them comfort and, and momentary happiness, not prosperity, but faith. The elect of God are out there. The elect of God sit in the pews of churches and it is the duty, it is the reason of, of, of their faith, the goodness, the, the strength, the health of their faith that God sends his servants. That is why we have the Bible, friends, that our faith might be encouraged, strengthened, nourished. But there's another element here. This greatest purpose on earth that the elect of God would come to faith, not just be nourished in their faith, but there's an element going on here in, in the language where Paul is saying, I've been sent as an apostle for the sake of creating faith in God's elect. That, that, that as Jesus said, his, his elect he calls the sheep, those he has chosen before the foundations of the earth. He has got, let me just say clearly, God has chosen all who will ever be saved. He chose out of the riches of his own love, not foreseeing any faith, good works or deeds in you. You can stop worrying about whether or not God would choose you. Believe in Christ and know you have been chosen by God. And Paul says that I go out and, and as Jesus said in John 10, he's the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. And he says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. Speaking of, of Jews, I have sheep that don't look like Jews. They're from other folds. They're in other nations. They're on other islands. He says, I must go and bring them also. But in Christ's ascension, he is now physically in heaven. Jesus cannot go anywhere. He's, he's sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father. When Jesus says, I will go, he means I will send my servants. And so Paul has been sent, but by spiritual lineage and legacy, we are sent for the sake of bringing about faith in God's chosen people. They are out there dead in their sins, without light, without life, and without hope. And God sends his servants to go bring them to faith. That is the greatest purpose on earth, to live for that is to fulfill the greatest call, the greatest purpose, the greatest plan that has ever been dreamt up. Paul knows that. Titus knows that. But Paul goes on here and says, so much more than just bringing them to faith. So much more than, 
than just bringing them to, to be believers. He wants to nourish them into mature disciples. So look at what he then says in the rest of verse 1. He says, I'm an apostle, I'm a servant. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. I was writing this week and I sort of made a little, a little a three-chain uh, logical progression for us. I said there's, there's knowledge, which is, you know, knowledge of the truth, which increases your faith, which increases your godliness. Uh, knowledge, faith, godliness. But in reading over and over and studying more, I realized that's not the order that Paul gives us. He doesn't say knowledge of truth and then faith and then godliness. He, he actually says faith, then knowledge, then godliness. There's a real sense that uh, the, I think the reason that he's saying this is because as, as he will write in Romans chapter 1, he will write in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the problem, the problem is not that we don't know enough. The problem is that we don't believe God. The problem does not, uh, your problem of, of let, let's take the, the atheist. You, you've got friends, you've got cousins, you've got uh, maybe people in your household claiming to be atheists. God calls them liars. He knows that they believe in him. They're in the darkest back corner of their mind. They know him to be real. The problem with, with our friends and loved ones who are atheists is not that they don't have enough information. It's not that they don't have enough evidence. They don't have enough truth that they know. It is that they do not have the faith which accepts that truth as true from God. So, so don't hear me saying that, that to become a Christian means stop trying to learn. It's all about blind faith. I'm not saying that. I'm saying to become a Christian is to believe truth as true from the most fundamentally true thing, Jesus is Lord. Truth only makes sense when it springs from this foundation that Jesus is Lord. And that is only said by the heart of faith. So I'm not saying that we are anti-scientific, anti-knowledge, anti-truth. We will see we're not. But I'm warning you that lest you ever try to, to, to gain in knowledge because, uh, because, or, or, or claim that God has given you enough knowledge to believe in him, or let anyone else make that mistake, know that truth is only truly understood as true when you start with the faith that Jesus is Lord. Every other truth is, is warped and twisted and misunderstood if you don't start at the right place. C.S. Lewis, would, uh, in his apologetic of uh, mere Christianity, great little book, he, he talks about Christianity, the truthfulness of it. And he says, I, I don't just, uh, I believe that Christianity is true for the same reason that I believe that the sun is true. Not simply because I can see its own light, but that because by its light, everything else is seen. Don't ever, I, I want to push back here against any mindset that would say, I'm not a truth guy, I'm a faith guy. Or that would say, I'm not a faith kind of person, I'm a truth kind of person. That doesn't exist. Faith believes the truths that cannot be accepted except for in Jesus Christ. And truth all comes into its right place as a blessing to us to add to our faith once we bend the knee to Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 2, you can do some reading at home. The, the whole chapter, Paul is making the point. 
that there are truths which we speak which are intellectually comprehended but not truly understood except by those who are spiritual. It is foolish to the world because they do not have faith. Not because we're speaking contradictions, anti-science kind of speech, but because without faith, they have a rejection to believe him who speaks. They reject the ultimate authority. So, so at, at that uh, point, we can see why Paul first says it's faith, which uh, end their knowledge of the truth. It's faith first, then truth, and that leads into godliness. Friends, never stop being truth hungry. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how much you know, no matter how many great experiences you've had, you will never outgrow the need to be desperate for truth. Truth is our food. No matter how many great meals you've had in the past, and I'm sure as fathers you had some good meals this morning, my wife made me an unchristian amount of bacon this morning. I am certain it shaved years off my life to the glory of God. But food is great. I've, no matter how many times I've, I've devoured a beautiful, wonderful breakfast, guess what happens tomorrow? I'm going to need to eat another ungodly amount of bacon lest I die. I will need, again, some kind of nourishment. There is, there is a reason that God calls the word bread in Scripture. It is that, it is that uh, food that needs to be spiritually eaten daily. Friends, you will not progress in godliness in your life for Jesus if you are not also progressing in truth. Let this be an encouragement, no, not a discouragement. If, if you're one who doesn't understand a lot of theology, you struggle with understanding a lot of the Bible, know that the God who brought you to faith seeks and covenants himself with you to bring you into an understanding of the truth. He loved you enough to give you Paul for the sake of the knowledge of of the truth. He loved you enough to send Titus. He loved you enough to then create elders and give you pastors who love you and teach you Bible, come alongside you if you need, give the church fathers and spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and brothers and sisters who will come alongside you and help you understand truth. But never excuse yourself from its necessity. I think every spirit-born child of God gives an amen in the heart at that, that they know that feeling and growth that comes when truth is sought and devoured. But there, this logical progression, it leads to godliness. All of God's truth, when understood, leads a man into right living. So, so many people try and maybe have this, this wrong mindset saying, saying you Christian or, or maybe you, you're, you're passionate about Christ or you're, you're a theological nut or you're always reading your Bible or you're always going back like Jesus did and saying, what does the Bible say? And here they are, people saying, you, you're too heavenly minded. Have you heard this one? Too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. There are Christians who that kind of sentiment could apply to. Yes, too, too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. But let's correct that and say, you're not truly heavenly minded if you're not of earthly. The more godly and helpful and humble and generous and open and hospitable and helpful and kind, that, that all will happen as I know more truth. We need to know that cannot happen truly in a way that will last 
without the basis of truth, received by faith because of God's sovereign election. Otherwise, we will become those flooded from the Jordan River, but dead, unuseful to any other life support for others. We will become like those always trying to put out in godliness it, through, through, through the giving up of, 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 of service to God like evaporation from the Dead Sea and become nothing but bitter, overly drawn out and eventually withdrawing from usefulness. <clears throat> but that never be us. Faith, knowledge, godliness. You can all already see the theme of the going to the hope of God. The hope is given to us. Now, when, when we talk about Christians and, and we talk about hope, we don't, mean, we don't mean wishful thinking. Like, I hope this guy or gal wins this election. Or I hope this team of mine achieves this or that. Yeah. Jesus coming back is when the New Testament talks over and over again about being our hope. It's happening. He's confidently on the promises of God. Friends, we always have hope in something. We've simply replaced what we have hope in. So, so simply answer this question in your own head. What thing, what future thing, maybe it's an event, maybe again, it's, a, it's an election outcome, a financial status, a relationship, a, an enjoyment of some kind, some, some stage of your life where you'll be able to do this or that. What is being a parent, becoming a grandparent, retiring, going on missions. There's something good about all of those things, but they were not designed to be your hope. To set your hope on that is to chase the horizon. You'll never meet it. It will keep on moving away. I want to give you, because it can feel so so, so trite, so, so uh, Hallmark card-esque for me to simply say, Put your hope in Jesus. But friends, there is something rock solid about that. And Paul goes here and gives us three theological reasons why. Number one, God who never lies. Number one, this is coming from a God who never, ever lies. Not simply that he hasn't lied yet. He has not lied. Uh, uh, you're, you're, you're an apologist. You're, you're sharing faith at work or in the family. And, and here comes that genius. He's listened to a lecture from Christopher Dawkins, uh, uh, sorry, Christopher Hitchens or, or Richard Dawkins. He's a genius. And he's going to come to Christmas or Father's Day lunch and say, you know, you believe in God. <clears throat> I've got friends like this. I can, I, I can impersonate them this way. You believe in God, right? God can do anything? Sure can. Yeah? Can God lie? Can God make a rock so heavy he can't even lift it? I'm going to stop with that impersonation. I'm annoying myself. Uh, <laughs> Apologize. Uh, 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 you know, can God create a rock? Friends, we need to be wary. And when we define God, uh, theology, as we define God, we don't restrict God. We just use what Scripture has told us about God to know him. And there are things that God cannot do. He can't do everything. But his power is not limited to do what accords with his own nature. No, God cannot sin. It's not a question of power. It's a question of character. No, God cannot lie. He cannot. To, to he, he is the exact definition of truth. 
What he says becomes true. He's, he's a creating God. He, he is unable to lie. He never will lie, never has lied. He has confirmed it, the book of Hebrews tells us, with an oath, this God who can never lie. If God was to lie, he would cease to be God. All of his promises would cave in on selves, become not just untrustworthy, but untrue. His words would break. That word which upholds every ounce of life and matter in the universe would cease to have its power. God would cease to be. The universe would stop existing. So don't worry. If God ever lies, there will be no consequence for you eternally. You'll cease to be. But friends, God never lies. This eternal life that will become in full fruition at Jesus and his coming comes from, it is promised by a God who never lies. But he says here also that he has promised, and, and we've sort of just hit that. He doesn't lie, and he promised. But he says here that he promised before the foundations of the world. Here he is, who, God who never lies, promised before the ages began. Number one, God never lies. Number two, he's made a promise. Number three, when did he make that promise? Was it once he, he, he weighed up how you'd lived? Was it once he, he, he sort of thought and scratched his head, watched a few thousand years of Christian history, I mean of human history, and thought, yeah, I reckon they're worth it. I reckon we can make this work. We'll do this. We'll kind of, we'll, we'll, uh, Jews didn't work. We'll throw them aside. Tell you what, we'll send Jesus. No, friends, this, this gospel that has come to fruition through history, this gospel which has come to you, which you have believed on, which you struggle to know with complete assurance that there is a future hope for you. You see the world, its terrible state. You see your sin, the terrible stains. You struggle to know what the future holds. Know with certainty your hope is not in vain. God who cannot lie promised before the ages began. Every single thing that is happening is not happening despite God's promises. It's happening exactly according to God's promises. 2020 has, has blown to bits everybody's plans except for God's. It is precisely ticking over just as perfectly as the best year or day of your life ever has. The darkest day of human history, the crucifixion of the God-man, we're told, was done exactly according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Your life is no different. Everything has been promised, planned by God for those reasons. He is not a lying God. He is a God who makes promises. And he's a God who has done all of this before the ages began. This is why your hope is not wishful thinking. It is, again, not faith despite truth. It is future faith, which we call hope, based on eternally divine, theological, scriptural, provable truths. So we can be absolutely sure. And then I just want to show here the, the paradox that, that we have. Look at what he says in, in verse 3. All this talk of God, his, his eternality from eternal past when he made the promises to eternity future when it's all come to pass. There's this bit in the middle, and that's us. Verse 3. And at the proper time, at just the time that God had planned, 
at the proper time, manifested or, or brought it about into being in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. You see this? This eternal promise of the omnipotent triune God comes into fruition or manifestation on the island of Crete, on the island of Australia, on every nation of the globe, through what? God sending angels from heaven to deliver messages like he did to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds? No, friends. Through Paul, former murderer, self-righteous, taken, saved, redeemed, empowered, sent apostle. His preaching is what brings about this glorious gospel. But do you see, do you see just how much this, this is not just Paul? It's Paul and he's sending Titus. And, and Titus is going to take this eternal, eternal plan and promise and then this eternal purpose of preaching of the gospel, he's then going to pass it on to elders in next week's sermon. And then those elders are also going to train up future elders and empower the the saints in the church for the ministry throughout their ordinary lives, throughout your workplace, your family, your parenting, your your friendships. The preaching of, of the gospel is permeated through all of that to achieve these eternal purposes of God. Never underestimate the calling of God on your life to be a Christian who believes these truths. Never underestimate the power of hope. As you think of your future, as you think of the future of all those around you still going to hell, as you think about this whole world that is dark and seems to be burning in every corner, have hope. Not just simply that we'll get out of here before it gets too bad, but that Jesus can bring gospel transformation to people. And it comes through preaching. But, but I just want to show you again the, the, the reason we can have hope in that. Because I know what you'll think. I'm not much of a preacher. I know what you'll think. I'm, I've tried sharing the gospel before, and I'm pretty sure I deconverted somebody listening. I, I'm certain there was at least three historical heresies there. Uh, I, I, I misquoted something. I think I quoted from the Quran at one point. I'm no good at this. I'm just no good. <coughs> Friends, look here who is, who is really in charge. Who brings this about? And when I say it, I mean what Paul says when he says it, that the eternal life which has been promised. In verse 3, and at the proper time manifested in his word. This is not talking about us manifesting. it. He's just said, God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching. Whose word is it? It's God's word. Who's manifesting it? God's manifesting it. Whose eternal promise is coming to pass here? It's God's eternal promise. Whose elect are being saved with certainty? God's elect, not your elect. And whose command has sent Paul and us to preach by the command of God, our Savior? 
We're really on, we're just being acted on in this. You, you are so less in charge of people's salvation than you think. You are so less in charge of your own salvation than you think. Plucked out by God's electing love. In, saved by his irresistible, effective grace of the Holy Spirit, who, who made you born again before you believed. Then you were enabled to believe faith, truth, godliness, hope, preaching, God will save his elect. He will use us. That is a promise. He even will use Titus on this godless little island. He says here with promise, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then he gets into working. This is why I left you. Put things into order. Appoint elders and so forth and we will look. Friends, I want to ask you, have you, coming to know this gospel, has it looked like you've come to know this gospel? Has it looked like you are standing in this golden eternal chain of our omnipotent God? Chosen, promised, elected, saved, given the Holy Spirit. Has, has your life been transformed in the way that Paul says that you would live a life worthy of the calling you received? Don't shrink back here. I think if you would say no to that and say, I really have not responded as I ought to as a Christian. I really have not believed God that, that he has work for me to do. I think the book of Titus is for you. The, the Christians on Crete are going to be told to stop getting drunk, stop beating people up, stop thieving. You're somewhere in that category? Good. Titus is for us. Believe the promises of God. They have not just saved you, but will empower you in the future. But friends, of course, there is, there is here promised grace and peace from the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. True grace from God. True peace in life eternally comes from God, not to everybody. Not the whole island of Crete, not the whole population of the world, not everybody in this room. It is an exclusive grace and peace offered to an exclusive bunch, but not, not an extraordinary bunch. The exclusivity is those who believe on Jesus Christ. So, so maybe you're here this morning and you hear all of this and you hear about Christ, you hear the reality of truth, you hear the, the, the promise of grace, but you need to know it only comes by believing in Jesus. Have you yourself, not, not your family not past experiences seem pretty good. Not, not crossing your fingers, hoping God will just forgive you on judgment day. Have you, have you seen Jesus in the gospel and trusted him with everything that is yours? Not, not that you have a strong, impressive faith, but you have thrown your soul in desperation on him. Have you knowing your sin, the guilt of it, the filth of it, the stain of it, and the offense that it is to an almighty God? Have you not run from that God, but brought your sin to that God? Because it is he that promises from the beginning, even the, before the beginning of the world, that all those who come to him, who call on the name of Jesus Christ, who trust in him for salvation, will be saved, forgiven with certainty, regardless of your past. See that Jesus on the cross has, has taken the sin of anyone who will believe, that his payment is enough to cover all who come, all your past, your present, and the future sins you are so very worried about as well. 
You can be called today justified, forgiven, adopted, loved, and then utilized in God's mission. Let's pray. God, you are the eternal God who has made eternal promises and you will never fail to bring them about. You cannot lie. You cannot uh, show up uh, as, as wanting or weak to fulfill something you ever said. We thank you, God, for the ministry of Paul, for the work of Titus and this word that comes to us this morning. It finds us, as we can feel so often, so ordinary, so weak, so, so lacking the power we need to live the Christian life, are sure and certain that you've probably just, just ticked us up. You're done with us. You're gonna move on to people more glorious. God, remind us it is us. Us, mediocre, ordinary Christians walking the way of the world that you call to take up arms, come under the banner of your son and begin living, living as Christian lives. Lord, I, I pray that you would do that to us. Encourage us, embolden us, call us again into right living. And Lord, may it all be with this, this basis of knowing divine truth as, as you have given it to us in scripture. May you nourish our souls that this week as we go, as we strive to obey, may we remember your promises. As we strive to, to, to do away with our guilt, may we remember your promises. As we strive to see others come to faith, would we remember your promises that not one of them can fall flat? And God, may you utilize us for the glory of Jesus, our King. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.